Good morning. Chapter 1, Old Testament, if you're using the Bible provided in front of you, it's on page 248, page 248. I'm going to be doing a sermon series in the book of 1 Kings. I've been wanting to preach through an Old Testament historical narrative, and the, the book of Kings has a lot of importance and relevant themes for the believer. Some of those being God's faithfulness to his promises, his sovereign control over history, the consequences of sin, and it contains many necessary gospel connections. It's a crucial book in the history of God's people. Some things you need to know about kings. Where is it? It's found in a group of books called the Former Prophets, In the original ordering of the Hebrew canon, it's sandwiched right between Samuel and Isaiah. In the biblical Hebrew language, the very first word of Kings is and, telling us it is a continuation of the story. The author of Kings expects that you have read everything from Genesis up till now. The book of Kings covers about 370 years of Israel's history. And Samuel, Israel is longing for a king, and they finally find one in David. He's unified the tribes of Israel into a kingdom. Everybody knows David, but not too many people know of his successor and son, Solomon. The first 11 chapters of 1 Kings are a detailed account of Solomon's rule and reign. If 1 Kings is about the decline of Israel and 2 Kings is about the fall of Israel, we could say the first 11 chapters present the rise and fall of Solomon. And anticipation heightens after David dies. Solomon fails, which tells us we're waiting for another king. The true king promised from long ago. When God told Abraham in Genesis 17, I will make kings come from you. In the middle of 1 Kings chapter 8, Solomon asked God to keep what he promised to David, saying, you will never fail to have a man to sit before me on the throne of Israel. If only your sons take care to walk before me as you have walked before me. Ultimately, Kings points forward to the ultimate king, Christ. The biggest question of the first two chapters, is God in control? There's turmoil and chaos in the kingdom. God's promise of his chosen king to sit on the throne is in jeopardy. But we are going to see that nothing can thwart God's sovereign plan. There are two roads to the throne. Self-exaltation and in fulfillment of divine promise. God's promised king will sit on his throne. Would you pray with me? Father, we acknowledge that you are in sovereign control of history. Nothing can thwart your plan. Not only that, but you are in sovereign control of our lives. Nothing surprises you. May this reality bring us great 
contentment, and perseverance until the end. We often need to be reminded of this reality because we so often forget. You are sitting on your throne. We have nothing to fear. We pray that you would speak to us through your word this morning. May we take hold of these moments and not treat them as common, but as sacred. We pray that your word will accomplish all its purposes this morning. And I pray that your voice will be heard over mine today. Let our gathering be honoring and glorifying to you. In your name I pray, Jesus. Amen. Well, the plan of man cannot overthrow the plan of God. How can we affirm a statement like that today? Corrupt politicians are moving about like snakes in the grass, looking for whatever traditional values they can destroy. Obviously, not all are corrupt, but the ones that are just make the most noise. Mass migrations out of major metropolitan areas They take every news headline, and every day it seems like our hope for a bright future dwindles away. It seems like the wicked end of man is winning. I would be more shocked if this were something new. Even the first century church was not immune to the hostility. The believers in Pergamum, for example, were living in the space where Satan's throne is. There was no imminent sign things would start looking up. They were in enemy territory behind enemy lines, and rescue was a long way off. For the Christians in Pergamum, it seemed like the wicked end of man was winning. But appearances can be deceitful. This is the situation in 1 Kings chapters 1 through 2. There is an impending vacancy to the king's throne in Israel. Also present is an ominous uprising by a serpent-like figure who wants this throne. There's panic and pleading from some of the main characters. If wickedness gets its way, all will be doomed. But appearances can be deceiving. This is God's throne, and no one takes his rule away from him. His providentially working behind the scenes, accomplishing all of his purposes, it turns out the evil plan of man is kind of like a mirage. It looks as if he is winning, but no one takes the throne away from God. The true king is reigning and everything is going according to plan. In the end, we will see that the plan of man cannot overthrow the plan of God. And that's really what these first two chapters are about. Let's read the first 27 verses of 1 Kings chapter 1. And King David was old, advanced in age, and they covered him with clothes, but he could not keep warm. So a servant said to him, Let them seek a young virgin for my lord the king. And let her attend the king and become his nurse. And let her lie in your bosom, that my lord the king may keep warm. So they searched for a beautiful girl throughout all the territory of Israel and found Abishag the Shunammite and brought her to the king. The girl was very beautiful. 
And she became the king's nurse and served him, but the king did not cohabitate with her. Now Adonijah, the son of Haggith, exalted himself, saying, I will be king. So he prepared for himself chariots and horsemen with 50 men to run before him. His father had never crossed him at any time by asking, why have you done so? And he was also a very handsome man. And he was born after Absalom. He had conferred with Joab, the son of Zeruiah, and with Abiathar, the priest. And following Adonijah, they helped him. But Zadok, the priest, Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, Nathan, the prophet, Shammai, Ray, and the mighty men who belonged to David were not with Adonijah. Adonijah sacrificed sheep and oxen and fatlings by the stone of Zoheleth, which looked down and saw the king and his servants. Oh, sorry, I misread. Which is beside Enrogel. And he invited all his brothers, the king's sons, and all the men of Judah, the king's servants. But he did not invite Nathan the prophet, Benaiah the mighty men, and Solomon his brother. Then Nathan spoke to Bathsheba, the mother of Solomon, saying, Have you not heard that Adonijah, the son of Haggith, has become king, and David our Lord does not know it? So now come, please, let me give you counsel and save your life and the life of your son Solomon. Go at once to King David and say to him, Have you not, my lord, O king, sworn to your maidservant, saying, Surely Solomon your son shall be king after me, and he shall sit on my throne. Why then has Adonijah become king? Behold, while you are still there speaking with the king, I will come in after you and confirm your words. So Bathsheba went into the king in the bedroom. Now the king was very old, and Abishag the Shunammite was ministering to the king. Then Bathsheba bowed and prostrated herself before the king, and the king said, What do you wish? She said to him, My lord, you swore to your maidservant by the Lord your God, saying, Surely your son Solomon shall be king after me, and he shall sit on my throne. Now behold, Adonijah is king, and now, my lord the king, you do not know it. He has sacrificed oxen and fatlings and sheep in abundance, and has invited all the sons of the king and Abiathar, the priest, and Joab, the commander of the army, but he has not invited Solomon, your servant. As for you now, my lord the king, the eyes of all Israel are on you to tell them who shall sit on the throne of my lord the king after him. Otherwise it will come, to, it will come about as soon as my lord the king sleeps with his fathers that I and my son Solomon will be considered offenders. Behold, while she was still speaking with the king, Nathan the prophet came in. They told the king, saying, Here is Nathan the prophet. And when he came in before the king, he prostrated himself before the king with his face to the ground. Then Nathan said, My lord the king, have you said Adonijah shall be king after me, and he shall sit on my throne? For he has gone down today and has sacrificed oxen and fatlings and sheep in abundance and has invited all the king's sons and the commanders of the army and Abiathar the priest. And behold, they are eating and drinking before him. 
And they say, long live King Adonijah. But me, even your servants, Zadok the priest, and Benaiah the son of Jehoiada, and your servant Solomon, he has not invited. Has this thing been done by the Lord the King? And you have not shown to your servants who should sit on the throne of my Lord the King after him? Well, it's a sobering picture. One of Israel's greatest kings in history is on his deathbed. This is the man who slayed a giant. When a lion or bear came and took a sheep from the flock, he went out after it and killed that beast. And now David is old and cold. He is so weak and frail that even this new beautiful woman who was brought into him does nothing for him. He doesn't even seem to be aware that his throne will soon be vacant. David's enemies are not far away, geographically speaking, but also familial speaking. The battle for dominion, which began in Genesis 3, is in full swing. In verse 5, Adonijah, one of David's sons, is preparing chariots and horsemen and 50 men to run before him. He is ready to make war against Solomon's claim to the throne by a coup d'etat. He's like a predator, slowly maneuvering himself toward his prey. And he has sinister motives. But his motives are not unclear. Adonijah exalts himself, saying, I will be king. He truly believes no one will stop him. It's the same serpent-like language found in the hearts of the Babylonian king in Isaiah 14. I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. And if you've been following the Old Testament narrative so far, you know that anyone who seeks to exalt himself will be humbled. Textually speaking, we are already given clues that this will not end well for Adonijah. We discover in verse 9 that Adonijah throws a premature coronation banquet where he sacrificed sheep, oxen, and fattened steers by the stone of Zoheleth, which is beside Enrogel. There is a word play here which, if we are paying attention, should cause alarm. Zoheleth means slithering. It's the stone of a serpent. And slithering, he does. He throws a coronation banquet, but it is shrouded in darkness. He invites his favorite people, but the narrator goes out of his way to tell us Adonijah does not invite Solomon, and he does not invite Nathan the prophet. Why? One commentator mentions that if he invited Solomon and Nathan to the feast, he would have been obligated to protect them, giving ancient Near Eastern customs. Sharing a meal meant something back then, and Adonijah knew that. In another sense, we can also make the inference that he knows Solomon is his rival. And if he is going to plan a take-over-the-throne party, certainly Solomon shouldn't be there. And then the pace begins to dramatically pick up. We go from a, a 25 mile per hour zone to a 50. Nathan the prophet speaks to Bathsheba, mother of Solomon. Warning in verse 11, have you not heard? 
that Adonijah has become king? Let me give you advice that you may save your own life and the life of your son Solomon. Bathsheba enters at once to see David. The Hebrew text repeats the same word here to describe David, old. Just in case you didn't get it before, here it is again. And we don't hear anything from David during this conversation. But just like Esther, who pleads her case before the king, knowing the risks, Bathsheba pleads her case before David. Behold, Adonijah is king. And now, my lord the king, you don't know it. The eyes of all Israel are upon you to announce to them who shall sit on the throne of my lord the king. Otherwise, it will come about as soon as my lord the king lies down with his fathers, that I and my son Solomon will be considered offenders. David, you better act now, or we are all going to die. Over ten times in chapter one, the word throne is repeated. This is the burning question in chapter one. Who will sit on David's throne? Adonijah or Solomon? There is only one true heir, and Bathsheba knows this. She's calling on David to remember the promise of God. And then Nathan comes in, bowing and paying homage to the king, just like Bathsheba did. So now we have two witnesses coming into the presence of the king, testifying to this attempted overthrow. This harkens back to Deuteronomy 19.15 where a single witness will not suffice against a person for any crime or wrongdoing. Two or three witnesses must be present. David, as we will see shortly, takes this charge very seriously. One critical piece of information to notice is something Adonijah does not do. He doesn't ever consult Nathan, Israel's true prophet, and he doesn't ever consult David, Israel's true king. Adonijah is in pursuit of his own kingdom imaginings, and he believes nothing will stop him. In many ways, Adonijah's vicious and relentless pursuit of his own rule and reign is reflected in our own lives. We should be aware that the same self-exalting spirit that consumed Adonijah is never far away from us. We want to be our own kings and queens. After all, we know better. We know better than our friends. We know better than our elders. We even know better than God. We see a vacant throne and we're taking it. This self-exalting spirit, this self-rule is evident in all our lives. It just takes different forms. I want to do this to my body, even though I know it's not healthy for me. It's my territory. Leave me alone. I will look the way I want to look. I want to spend hours in front of an iPhone screen because it serves my desires My desires are paramount, not God's. I know my kids want to play with me after coming home from work, but I'm tired. I want to be left alone. They can find something else to do. 
I want to pursue this dating relationship because it momentarily satisfies, and I might not find anyone better. In fact, I deserve a little physical, premarital, sexual interaction because God has taken too long. Don't you know all that I've been through? If you only knew, you would be done waiting too. And what we see about the nature of sin is that it's not just about breaking rules. It's much bigger than that and has far weightier implications. One pastor remarked, sin is the rejecting of God's rule and reign and inserting our own in its place. Sin is the rejecting of God's rule and reign and inserting our own in its place. Sin does not have limits. We don't reach a certain point and think, okay, I've got what I want, I'm good. No, our flesh craves more. And if God doesn't put a stop to it, you will ruin yourself. In what ways have you made yourself king or queen? Where have you inserted your own rule and reign in the place of God? And how is this new rule and reign working out for you? Maybe you have exalted yourself and pursued, pursued your own kingdom rule, but it's not working out as you thought. You're angry because God isn't advancing your desires the way you want. You're upset because things aren't working out the way you planned. If you feel this way, it could be a sign that you need to turn back and hand things over to God. The exaltation of self has devastating consequences. Adonijah, soon enough, will suffer in a way he never expected. He couldn't stop his pursuit of the throne. And there are severe consequences for our decision to insert our own will in the place of God's will. Adonijah's pursuit of self-rule is a sober warning for us. Let's go to point number two. My first point was a king by self-exaltation. My second point is a king by divine promise. Let's read verses 28 through 53. Then King David said, Call Bathsheba to me. And she came into the king's presence and stood before the king. The king vowed and said, As the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life from all distress, surely as I vow to you by the Lord God of Israel, saying, Your son Solomon shall be king after me, and he shall sit on my throne in my place, I will indeed do so this day. Then Bathsheba bowed with her face to the ground and prostrated herself before the king and said, May my lord King David live forever. Then King David called, said, Call to me Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, Benaiah, son of Jehoda. And they came into the king's presence. The king said to them, Take with you the servants of your lord, and have my son Solomon ride on my mule, and bring him down to Gihon. Let Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet anoint him there as king over Israel, and blow the trumpet, and say, Long live King Solomon." Then you shall come up after him, and he shall come and sit on my throne and be king in my place. 
For I have appointed him to be ruler over Israel and Judah. Benaiah, the son of Jehoda, answered the king and said, Amen. Thus may the Lord, the God of my Lord, the king, say, As the Lord has been with my Lord, the king, so may he be with Solomon, and make his throne greater than the throne of my Lord, King David. So Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, and Benaiah, the Cherethites and the Pelethites went down and had Solomon ride on King David's mule and brought him to Gihon. Zadok the priest then took the horn of oil from the tent and anointed Solomon. Then they blew the trumpet, and all the people said, Long live King Solomon. All the people went up after him, and the people were playing on flutes and rejoicing with great joy. The earth shook at their noise. Now Adonijah and all the guests who were with him heard it as they finished eating. When Joab heard the sound of the trumpet, he said, Why is the city in such an uproar? While he was still speaking, behold, Jonathan, the son of Abiathar, the priest, came. Then Adonijah said, Come in, for you are a valiant man and bring good news. But Jonathan replied to Adonijah, No, our lord King David has made Solomon king. The king has also uh, sent with him Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, Benaiah, the Cherethites, the Pelethites, and they have made him ride on the king's mule. Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet have anointed him king in Gihon, and they have come up from there rejoicing so that the city is in uproar. This is the noise which you have heard. Besides, Solomon has even taken his seat on the throne of the kingdom. Moreover, the king's servants came to bless our Lord King David, saying, May your God make the name of Solomon better than your name and his throne greater than your throne. And the king bowed himself on the bed. The king has also said thus, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who has granted one to sit on my throne today, while my own eyes see it. Then all the guests of Adonijah were terrified, and they arose, and each went his way. And Adonijah was afraid of Solomon, and he arose, went and took the horns of the altar. Now it was told Solomon, saying, Behold, Adonijah is afraid of King Solomon. For behold, he has taken the horns of the altar, saying, Let King Solomon swear to me today that he will not put his servant to death with a sword. Solomon said, if he is a worthy man, not one of his hairs will fall to the ground. But if wickedness is found in him, he will die. So King Solomon sent, and they brought him down from the altar. And he came and prostrated himself before King Solomon. And Solomon said to him, go to your house. King David listens and summons Bathsheba. The woman who was once an object of David's insatiable lust is now guaranteed protection from the man who formerly took advantage of her. David reiterates his promise that Solomon will indeed take his place on the throne. Tony Merida comments, Though Adonijah may have looked more like a king than Solomon, Solomon comes to the throne by promise. He comes to the throne the way we come into the kingdom by grace, not by performance or merit. 
King David then summons Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, and Benaiah. This repeated summoning lets us know that David is awake and he's alert to the situation. His instruction for them is to give Solomon what their instruction, what his instruction is for them to give Solomon is significant. He is to ride David's mule into Gihon, a spring in the city of Jerusalem. To place yourself on the king's mule was a symbol of authority. In the ancient Near East, when a king's authority was uncontested, riding in on such an animal was a sign that he was not concerned about his rivals. If there was any concern, his war horse would be ready to go. What a contrast here we see between Solomon and Adonijah. Adonijah immediately goes for the war horse. Remember, verse 5, he prepared for himself chariots and horsemen. Solomon is content with the mule. Solomon receives a true coronation parade. Verse 39 through 40, Then they blew the trumpet, and all the people said, Long live King Solomon. And all the people went up after him. And the people were playing on flutes and rejoicing with great joy, so that the earth shook at their noise. Solomon's party drowns out Adonijah's. And then the narrator emphasizes the obvious. Solomon is now king. Verse 39, the trumpet blows. Verse 43, Jonathan tells Adonijah, it's too late. Solomon has already mounted the king's mule. And Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet has anointed him king. The city is going wild. Even the king's servants come to bless King David, saying, May God make the name of Solomon better than your name, and his throne greater than your throne. And Adonijah can't take it anymore. The text tells us he was afraid of Solomon. There is no mention that Adonijah repented of his actions. He just doesn't want to die. And this makes us wonder if his words are coming from the heart or just the head. Adonijah's self-exaltation results in utter humiliation. He runs into hiding, grabs the horns of the altar, and he wants Solomon to ensure that he will not put him to death. Solomon tells him, go to your house. God's people have always needed a king. And God's king would always come by promise, not self-pursuit. Here you have Solomon, David's son, riding into Jerusalem on a mule to be anointed with oil from a tent. The crowds greet him with shouts of praise, recognizing he is the true successor. Solomon even dispenses mercy to his enemy, Adonijah, allowing him to live despite his attempted annex of the throne. What more could the people have asked for in a king? But we know Solomon is not that king. He fails. The long-awaited ruler is not who he thought. 
we are waiting for another king. Matthew tells you in his genealogy that this king was from the line of David and Solomon, which meant that he was the rightful heir to the throne. He was anointed not with oil, but with the Holy Spirit at his baptism. When it came time to be crowned, this king rode into Jerusalem like Solomon, but on a donkey. He did not come to make war, to exalt himself, but to die as a sacrifice for sinners. Matthew records the Jerusalem crowds shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. David's greater son is on the scene, riding into the city of David to be crowned king. But this would be an enthronement unlike anything we would ever see. His crowning was a crown of thorns. His enthronement was being nailed to a cross. The sign above him read, King of the Jews, as an insult, but he was truly King of the Jews. He suffered apparent defeat. He was killed and laid in a tomb. And the enemies of God celebrated. Maybe he wasn't the true King after all. But the enemy knows nothing of God's power. The king was a willing victim. He knew no sin, but became sin for you. He died paying the penalty for your sins, taking the just wrath of God upon himself. And because he committed no treachery and was perfectly obedient to the Father, walking in absolute perfect righteousness, he was raised from the dead three days later. No longer could his enemies shout, the great king is dead, because on that third day, God announced, long live the king. The apostle Paul in Ephesians writes in chapter 1, Jesus, this risen king, is seated on his heavenly throne. He is ruling and reigning. And he is seated at the Father's right hand, a symbol of authority. And this king is coming back. Not as a humble servant, not to die in the place of sinners, but to conquer. And when he comes again at the end of the age, you will have no more opportunity to bow to this king if you have not already done so. The Bible says that today is the day of salvation. The question before you is whose kingship are you going to submit to? His or your own pursuit of self-rule? Are you going to choose sin and death or are you going to choose life? The king has come, he is reigning, and he is coming back. My third and final point, a kingdom established in judgment. Let's look at the first 12 verses of chapter 2. The first 12 verses. As David's time to die drew near, he charged Solomon, his son, saying, I am going the way of all the earth. Be strong, therefore, and show yourself a man. Keep the charge of the Lord your God to walk in his ways, to keep his statutes, his commandments, his ordinances, and his testimonies. 
according to what is written in the law of Moses, that you may succeed in all that you do and wherever you turn, so that the Lord may carry out his promise which he spoke concerning me, saying, If your sons are careful of their way to walk before me in truth with all their heart and with all their soul, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. Now you also know what Joab, the son of Zariah, did to me, what he did to the two commanders of the armies of Israel, to Abner, the son of Ner, to Amasa, the son of Jether, whom he killed. He also shed the blood of war and peace, and he put the blood of war on his belt about his waist and on his sandals on his feet. So act according to your wisdom, and do not let his gray hair go down to Sheol in peace. But show kindness to the sons of Barzillai, the Gileadite, and let them be among those who eat at your table, for they assisted me when I fled from your brother Absalom. Behold, there is with you Shammai, the son of Gera, the Benjamite. Now it was he who cursed me with a violent curse on the day, I went to Mahanaim, but when he came down to me at the Jordan, I swore to him by the Lord, saying, I will not put you to death with the sword. Now, therefore, do not let him go unpunished, for you are a wise man, and you will know what you ought to do to him, and you will bring his gray hair down to Sheol with blood. Then David slept with his fathers and was buried in the city of David. The days that David reigned over Israel were 40 years. Seven years he reigned in Hebron, and 33 years he reigned in Jerusalem. And Solomon sat on the throne of David his father, and his kingdom was firmly established. Beginning in verse 1 of chapter 2, this is the longest time David has spoken so far. And he gives Solomon a charge. There are two pieces to it. The first part deals with Solomon's heart. And the second part deals with Solomon's kingdom. If he is not walking in the way of Yahweh, the kingdom will collapse. The charge is not unusual if you have been following the Old Testament story so far. In fact, it is a charge that echoes like a refrain throughout the Old Testament. He is like Moses, who at the end of Deuteronomy commands Israel Take to heart all the words I have solemnly declared to you this day, so that you may command your children to obey carefully all the words of this law. They are not just idle words, they are your life. He is like Joshua, who in Joshua chapter 23 gives the charge, Be very strong. Be careful to obey all that is written in the book of the law of Moses, without turning to the left or to the right. However, what may be unusual is that right after this command to obey the law of God, David puts out a death warrant for Joab and tells Solomon to execute. Joab's murder of Abner and Amasa was unlawful. One commentator observes, blood might lawfully be shed in time of war in a fair fight. And Joab might have slain the two captains in battle without guilt, but he slew them when they were at peace with him and unprepared by treachery. 
This is clear from verse 5, avenging in time of peace for blood that had been shed in war and putting the blood of war on the belt around his waist and on the sandals on his feet. David then calls out Shemai and wants to ensure that Solomon will bring his gray head with blood down to Sheol. Why is this? He cursed David. And so the last words of David end with, you shall bring his gray head with blood down to Sheol. The third man needs some space here too. Barzillai and his family should receive mercy. In verse 7, David says, But deal loyally with the sons of Barzillai the Gileadites, and let them be among those who eat at your table. For with such loyalty they met me when I fled from Absalom, your brother. Barzillai was kingdom-minded, not in the sense of the other two, but that he understood who the true king was, and that the true king was appointed by God himself. Solomon then ascends to the throne and his kingdom is firmly established. But there's a fourth man on David's radar, Solomon's radar, Adonijah. Like the serpent in Eden, Adonijah will never relent. And the narrator details a crucial conversation between he and Bathsheba, verse 13. Now Adonijah, the son of Haggith, came to Bathsheba, the mother of Solomon, and she said, Do you come peacefully? He said, Peacefully. Then he said, I have something to say to you. She said, Speak. He said, You know that the kingdom was mine and that all Israel fully expected me to be king. However, the kingdom has turned about and become my brother's. For it was his from the Lord, and now I have one request to make of you. Do not refuse me. She said to him, Speak. And he said, Please ask King Solomon. He will not refuse you to give me Abishag the Shunammite as my wife. Adonijah wants to marry Abishag. But we can be sure romantic affection is far from his mind. Adonijah is making another move to the throne. He knew this was his last chance. Abishag had been David's concubine. In that culture, a king's harem was considered the property of the king and was passed on to the next king. And by obtaining Abishag as a wife, Adonijah would have two claims to the throne. He was the older brother of Solomon, and he would be married to one of the women of King David's harem. Notice in verse 18, Bathsheba says in response to Adonijah, very well, I will speak to the king for you. There is no mention from the narrator whether Bathsheba agreed with Adonijah or not, but the silence is enough to inform us that a brutal end awaits the king's enemy. In verse 21, she gives Solomon his request. Let Abishag the Shunammite be given to Adonijah, your brother, as a wife. And you can also almost hear Solomon yelling in anger in response to his mother. Why do you ask this? Should I give him the kingdom also? God, do so to me and more if this does not cost him his life. 
Now therefore, as the Lord lives, who has established me and set me on the throne of David my father, and who has made me a house as he promised, surely Adonijah will be put to death today. And soon enough, Adonijah is snuffed out, and he is quickly struck dead by Benaiah, whom Solomon sends out for him. There is no climactic sword fights, no final last words from the enemy. Before he is taken out at the last second, he breathes his last and he is gone from the story forever, never to return. Now it's Joab's turn, verse 28. Now the news came to Joab, for Joab had followed Adonijah. The Lord will return his blood on his own head because he fell upon two men more righteous and better than he and killed them with the sword. While my father David did not know it, then Joab goes. In verse 34, then Benaiah went up and struck him down and put him to death. The king then calls for Shammai. Shammai's situation is a little different. We read after three years, two of his servants left him and ran to Gath. Shammai leaves his city of refuge, which he was not supposed to do, and go after them. He was not supposed to leave his city of refuge. It's like a term of condition. If you stay here, you live. If you leave, you die. But sure enough, he follows his servants out of the city. Then the king commanded Benaiah, and he went out and struck him down. And he died. Finally, in verse 45, we read, But King Solomon shall be blessed, and the throne of David shall be established before the Lord forever. So the king commanded Benaiah, and he went out and fell upon him so that he died. Thus the kingdom was established in the hands of Solomon. However long it took, one by one, the king's enemies were struck down in judgment, and the kingdom was established. We are supposed to notice a profound theme here. The kingdom of God is established through judgment. Gavin Ortland, in his study on kings, writes this. A cynical reader might regard this, the killing of these men, as the vindictive behavior of a newly established king to consolidate his power. However, we must recognize that it is right to punish sin. And within the context of the Israelite theocracy, God used human agents as mediators of his judgment. It is precisely through this judgment that God's kingdom is established. Look at verse 12 and 46. They provide an inclusio to this section. An inclusio is a literary device which marks the beginning and ending of a section and tells us what it's about. Verse 12. So Solomon sat on the throne of his father David, and his kingdom was firmly established. Verse 46. So the kingdom was established in the hand of Solomon. After subduing the enemy, this statement in verse 46 acts like a victory song for Israel. God's promises were fulfilled after executing justice on his enemies. His plan 
not the wicked end of man stands, and his kingdom is settled. Will God change the way he establishes his kingdom? Just as Solomon's kingdom was established in righteous judgment, so the kingdom of God will be established in righteous judgment. His first coming was as a servant. Being in the form of God, he did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he humbled himself and obediently went to the cross as a sacrificial lamb led to the slaughter to pay for the sins of his people. But he is coming back a second time, and his second coming will not be like his first. It isn't to humble himself as a servant, it is to conquer John in Revelation 1 writes, Look, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the peoples of the earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. He is coming in judgment. He is going to judge the nations. He will separate the sheep from the goats, the believers from the rebellious. Matthew records, Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance. The kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. If you are not a follower of this king, you have a choice to make. Are you going to serve God's true king or not? If you refuse to repent of your sins and submit yourself to Jesus' rule and reign, well, your fate will be the same as Joab and Shammai. If you continue to pursue your own lust for power and control, acting as God, you will die, just like Adonijah. Philip Ryken rightly concludes... Each of the men Solomon executed had one thing he refused to give up for the kingdom of God. Adonijah had to have Abishag. Joab wanted his revenge. Shammai would not let go of his servants. What are you holding on to today that you must let go of? What do you so desperately want to hold on to that you are willing to forfeit your place in the kingdom of God? Remember, you can gain the whole world, but as Jesus said, you will lose your soul. But remember, God's mercy is greater than your sin. And so I urge you to come to him now. Don't wait, and you will find salvation. You must trust in the king. If you are a follower of Christ, what do you need to let go of that is keeping you from being fully committed to the kingdom of God? Is it a busy schedule that exists just to keep you busy? One that fills all your weekends, which even prevents you from regularly gathering with the church? Is it a hollow reputation you are trying to build on social media that consumes all of your time and energy in an attempt to make your name 
great. I want to conclude with one last word. God's promised king has come, and he is reigning. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, one which will never be destroyed. What would it look like this next year to go from living passively for the kingdom of God to submitting your entire life to the king and praying daily that his kingdom would come? What would it look like to live day by day with an eager anticipation of his second coming? God's promised king has come, and he is coming again. Let's go to this king now in prayer. Father, we do pray that you would help us to live in eager anticipation of the king's return. Let his return shape and guide all that we do now, how we spend our time, our money, our resources. Let us live differently from the way the world lives that we might attract more people to this king. Pray that we would live lives of repentance and faith. We pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. Would you-